This is The Guardian. Hallo, hier ist Clark. Sicher gibt es Dinge, bei denen du dich trotz einer Riesenauswahl super auskennst. Vielleicht sind es Automodelle oder Joghurtalternativen. Und wie sieht es mit Versicherungen aus? <lacht> Kein Problem. Mit Clark hast du auch da den Plan. Denn Clark vergleicht die Angebote von über 160 Versicherern für dich und empfiehlt dir die, die zu dir passen. Die Übersicht über alle deine Versicherungsverträge behältst du mit der kostenlosen Clark-App. Ganz ohne Papierkram. Welcome to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott, Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian. And this is our Christmas special. With most of the country already under extreme measures, it's clear that we need to do more together to bring this new variant under control while our vaccines are rolled out. This time last year, things were looking pretty bleak. Many of us were apart from family and another long lockdown was on the horizon. But there was some hope. The long-awaited news that COVID-19 vaccines were being given to the old and vulnerable, with us all hoping for a return to normal after the second wave subsided. We thought we had gotten over the worst of it. But as we now know, the Omicron variant had other ideas. No one should be in any doubt. There is a tidal wave of Omicron coming. But could the latest twist in the pandemic bring about the end of Boris Johnson? All the while, scandals were rampant through the halls of Parliament, with sleaze... Mr Patterson announced he would leave Parliament in the cruel world of politics at once. Affairs... I've been to see the Prime Minister to resign as Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. Party leadership tussles... I think sacking Angie for instance, is not a unifying thing to do. And culminating in multiple revelations about lockdown parties at number 10. Those were people uh, at work talking about work. It was the Guardian scoop keeping the Prime Minister's feet to the fire this week, a photo showing him and his staff in the Downing Street Garden having drinks and food in May 2020. If you can think of how hard they're working and under the uh, various pressures of the week, they, they would sometimes have a drink. As government ministers tout questionable excuses and Johnson tries to regain control of the situation, as well as salvage any trust from the public, it had us all questioning what could possibly be in store for UK politics next year? To try and get a sense of this, I spoke to The Guardian's political editor, Heather Stewart, and Guardian columnist, Raphael Baer. Heather, let's start with you. Um, no one can know for sure, I suppose, but I have a feeling that Boris Johnson didn't ask Santa to end the year like this, did he? Definitely not. And it's a combination, isn't it, of the self-inflicted and the sort of act of God. You know, we've we've got this new wave of the virus coming, this new variant, the Omicron variant that's, you know, absolutely crashing over the UK just at a time when people were sort of desperate to be to feel as though they were, you know, they'd done their bit and had their jabs and they were clear of it. So that's left him in a sort of horrendous situation, caught between scientific advice and his his sort of fractious lockdown sceptic backbenchers. But he's also coming off the back of a whole series of sort of self-inflicted disasters, isn't he? So there was the Owen Patterson affair where the prime minister sort of weighed in behind this 
uh, I think we're allowed to say dodgy, uh, ex-MP who's now had to stand down for paid lobbying. So I, I wouldn't hesitate to do it again tomorrow. Absolutely no, no, no question. His MPs will all march through the lobbies to support Owen Paterson. And then, you know, the next day, the scandal was so great that Boris Johnson sort of dropped him like a, a stone. And that was really the beginning of a really difficult period for him where he's just seen one disaster after another, including, of course, this string of stories about lockdown busting parties in Downing Street last year. A photograph of the gathering, which Number 10 says was a work meeting, has been published in today's Guardian newspaper. And Raph, if we take our listeners back to the beginning of the year, I mean, January felt like a point where it was the depths of despair for a lot of people. It was a horrible lockdown. There was a huge spike in cases hospitalizations and deaths and but there was a kind of hope pinned on the vaccine and Boris Johnson was getting a lot of the credit for that because especially in comparison to a lot of countries in Europe and we were seeing people have um, a renewed faith in government back then weren't we? Yeah we really were I mean it's very interesting to look back on Boris Johnson's poll ratings the pattern of it because People get this wrong sometimes. There is a sense that either he started off very popular and the Get Brexit Done was a big hit and the election. But actually, you know, he, he wasn't super popular. He was just much more popular than Jeremy Corbyn, who was about the least popular politician, you know, candidate to be prime minister anyone could remember. So the bar was pretty low for that. Uh, he then had this big spike in popularity when he himself nearly died from COVID. He then was sort of slid down or was actually became very unpopular you know, as things just dribbled on and there was all the mixed messaging over the summer of, of 2020 and then going into that period in sort of November towards that lockdown that you were just talking about. And then the, you get to December and then the vaccines kick in and that's a big bounce for him. So, you know, where, where he was and with a, with a vaccine looking like you could just get Brexit done, get COVID done, talk about doing something else, that whole trajectory that he thought he was on, uh, that's just not available. And, and the whole project is now adrift and he's in quite a bad place. Do you think some of us, maybe all of us, I know maybe I did, underestimated the effect of that vaccine bounce? You know, you saw soaring heights of conservative popularity during that period of time. And it masked a lot of the dissatisfaction people might have been feeling about other stuff, because ultimately the one thing they cared about was getting to see their family and going to the pub again, right? I think that's very much true. So I, I think, and certainly some of the sensible, level-headed conservative MPs that you spoke to at that time did warn about this. They said, look, what's happening here is a feel-good factor bounce as we come out of the pandemic, or as, we, as was it then seemed, we're coming out of the pandemic, and a residual sense, what some people describe as kind of long Corbyn, like this residual sense of like the Labour Party is just not fit to govern, no one's interested, no one cares what the opposition has to say, so feel good plus things looking up turns into kind of default support for the incumbent government, which is not the same as thinking, actually, I'm really pleased with the way Boris Johnson is running the country. And as soon as you get to actual hard governance issues or the economy starts to sort of stutter and sputter and, and, and stall, then, yeah, there was a lot of pent up sense of, well, actually, who is this guy? Who is this clown? Should we really trust him? And people, some Tories sort of saw that coming, actually. And I think also, you know, you have to remember that the cushioning that was that was coming from billions and billions of pounds being poured at the economy from the Treasury. You know, that we had this period, this extraordinary period, which I think you sort of can't overestimate the effect of, really, where the Treasury was literally paying the wages for, for millions of people who were on furlough, you know, and sort of chucking money at uh, businesses to, to try and stop them going under. And, you know, obviously, lots of people still had a very, very tough financial time. But I think that was, a you know, put a bit of sort of 
cotton wool, you know, financial cotton wool around people. And I think that will have helped as well to sort of dull the political impact of, of what people were going through with the pandemic. And some of the things that really spring to mind about how the government felt like Teflon in a way that it doesn't right now are things like questions over David Cameron's lobbying on behalf of Greensill. And so it's, like it's important for the committee to know that I, you know, was absolutely had a big economic investment in the future of Greensill. I wanted the business to succeed. I wanted it to grow. Uh, which was followed up by a few other Tory Slee scandals like Wallpaper Gate, the story of that really expensive gold wallpaper bought for number 10 and who paid for it. And the series of explosive blog posts by the, the former advisor, Dominic Cummings, all of those things. If you look at the Tory election results in May, they just don't seem to take the shine off Johnson at the time, do they? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think there are two different things going on there. With Greensill, it's very interesting because uh, the response to that seemed almost to park it in a different era of politics. You know, David Cameron came out about the worst. And one thing that Boris Johnson has done very, very effectively is sort of say, uh, mark, make, make December the 12th, 2019, kind of year zero. And when you layer onto that, also that sense that we were coming out of the pandemic, people just didn't want to hear the sort of negativity about politics and where Boris Johnson is very effective is when he does that, you know, relentlessly optimistic boosterism that plays very, very well with some people instead of saying, well, well, why do you have to carp on about this stuff? And if it's the question is, is do you think politicians are a bit grubby and sleazy and too close to business? The answer is, well, obviously, yes, but that's true of all of them. Uh, and Labour weren't necessarily distinguishing themselves as somehow the emblems of, of a purer, better way of doing politics. I suppose the thing about Cummings was that even if his message resonated with people, the messenger was just so tainted by his antics the previous year. Yeah, there's one thing the public remember about Dominic Cummings, and it was, it was you know, all of us sort of collectively as a nation watching that extraordinary Downing Street Rose Garden press conference where he gave this sort of rambling explanation of why he'd had to drive across the, you know, hundreds of miles across the country when the rest of us were staying at home. We agreed that we should go for a short drive to see if I could drive safely. We drove for roughly half an hour and ended up on the outskirts of Barnard Castle Town. And part of it, again, was to do with this mood that was abroad, which was, you know, we, we're in this public health crisis. You know, I mean, this is certainly what opposition parties will tell you people were, were saying at the time in focus groups. You know, it's a national crisis. It couldn't have been predicted. Um, you know, the government are doing their best. And, you know, has anyone really done much better? You know, and I think that that just felt like it was the national mood at, at the time. And, and Cummings was, was unable to puncture it much as he wanted to. And yet the a sort of a foundation coat was applied on this attack line that Labour are now making a little bit more progress with on, you know, there's one rule for them, one rule for everyone else. Yeah. That even then there was a sense that, that that bit of it was slightly cutting through. Uh, and and it, it, that, as I say, that foundation, that primer coat is now being painted over with even more lurid colours. And so although it didn't really cut through a lot then, once you get into the just the sort of the classic English aversion to cue barging, I think then it becomes a much more salient issue. And there is that sense of just the basic injustice of people who have their backstage VIP pass, who can do whatever they want, while the rest of us are having to stand outside in the rain in a queue. But we should add also that even when you went into the autumn and you got the supply chain chaos and things sort of grinding to a halt and big queues uh, for petrol, even then, at that late stage, it seems that it wasn't really sticking to the government that much. I did think that was extraordinary, actually, in the in the run up to Conservative Party conference that you had these. I was thinking back to those, you know, the, the, the sort of fuel protests that we had back during the 
Labour governments and thinking, you know, at that time, fuel never ran out at that time, did it? And yet now you you literally have people turning up at petrol stations, unable to fill up their car. It's just, you know, something unprecedented. I you know, can't remember in my life. And it, it seemed amazing to me that there wasn't more kind of fury about that. And to the extent that there was, that it wasn't aimed at the government. And I, you know, I had people just become inured to being told, oh, you can't do this, you can't have that. And, you know, actually, you're going to have to find a way around it over the last sort of couple of years of sort of privations. I, I don't know. But it, I was amazed at how little kind of anger there was about that, really. I think that's absolutely right, Heather. I think you've really hit on something there. There was just a sense it just got folded into into the slight kind of blitz spirit and mid 70s resignation to everything being a bit crap <laughs> that we just everyone just sort of just accepted there was something culturally uh weirdly resigned to that that made it apolitical in a way that it really should have been much more political i mean there were moments of difficulty weren't there i mean i'm, I'm gonna make you talk about that awful video in the department of health which forced out matt hancock over the summer the health secretary matt hancock caught kissing an aide breaching his own social distancing rules at the time and obviously humiliating, a terrible time for him. But there were some conveniences for Johnson out of that because he could move a health secretary who was much more cautious on the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I mean, Cummings said he'd repeatedly urged the prime minister to sack Matt Hancock, who's obviously very much not a fan. But he also made very clear that, you know, the prime minister himself had had a lot of doubts about Hancock's performance at, at various points over things like PPE procurement and so on. But yeah, as you say, Hancock was very much in a different place to the prime minister on restrictions and on, on daily life. And, um, you know, he was often seen as the person in the room who was who was urging caution. And yes, that's in a sense, that's the health secretary's job. They're there to to be the voice of sort of public health around the table. But I think that was also his sort of instinct and his approach. And so it did feel certainly for a while that when Hancock was replaced with Sajid Javid, that Javid is in a very different place. And, and, and you definitely felt for a while that those those conversations, the whole language around uh, the pandemic and how we were handling it was shifted for a bit. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was useful to have Hancock out the door. But I mean, it definitely added another kind of layer of this sense of one rule for them, another rule for the rest of us, didn't it? I mean, the other thing is, yeah, that July opening, the sort of the big Freedom Day, as they slightly obnoxiously called it, uh, that was a very big gamble that the government took. Uh, and, you know, in terms of there being differences in terms of how quickly you should move, I mean, until Omicron, uh, there was a feeling that, that, you know, Johnson gambled big on that. And in his way, you know, as oftentimes, it paid off. Uh, and actually... You know, there were not that long ago I was seeing commentary and it was seen to be a, t a very respectable view that the UK had done something quite clever by allowing a kind of rolling low level infection rate through young people over the summer who weren't going to get terribly ill, building towards something like herd immunity when the weather was nice so that when you went into the autumn, you're in better shape than a lot of continental European countries that have been more cautious. Uh, what's clear now is that having run the NHS pretty hot, actually, during the summer to then have a massive Omicron outbreak. It's just one of those things where the volatility of what seems like a good idea at the time and what turns out not to have any impact and then what then turns out in hindsight to, to have been the first step towards a disaster for the government. It's much harder to read at the moment. It's been a funny year like that. And there's been so much bubbling under the surface for Boris Johnson, you know, his backbenchers, his relationship with Rishi Sunak, the, the COVID inquiry, which is coming up, Lord Frost resigning as Brexit minister. There are, there are so many pitfalls we can mention. But while we're still on sleaze, uh, I want to talk about Labour a bit and how they've reacted to it. 
I've just done an interview with Rachel Reeves who talks about during that May election time, um, which led on to that disastrous reshuffle uh, post the Hartlepool by-election lost. They really tried to make Slees an issue on the doorstep and it, it just didn't work. And now when they're out on the doorsteps, like in North Shropshire, uh, which the Conservatives lost to the Lib Dems last week, it really is an issue. I mean, has Labour changed anything? I mean, Keir Starmer has now got the reshuffle he wants. He has the operators he wants in the shadow cabinet. But is it just really that the public are wanting to hear it more now rather than it being anything Labour has done? Okay, Hartlepool, that was a bit un- actually a bit unlucky for Labour in the sense that was a really tough by-election because you know there was this huge Brexit party vote just ready to just slide across uh, and create a, a Tory vote there that sort of was pent-up Tory vote from... 2019 that just hadn't happened. So that was actually a much tougher by-election than I think probably a lot of people realised before. Uh, And the real mistake that Labour made there was political handling of it in the opposition leader's office, the bungled reshuffle immediately afterwards and turning into a row between the leader and Angela Rayner. That was poor political management. I mean, it felt very true at the time, but it was also just poor politics by the leader of the opposition. And you do sense they have just professionalised a little bit since then. They have slightly learned that lesson. I think the thing that will be really encouraging for Labour is that actually the who would you prefer as prime minister metric is now tipping in Keir Starmer's favour over Boris Johnson. And he suffered on that particular metric when the, the, the sort of the disreputability of Boris Johnson is just really cut through, then people will be ready for that. It's it's not the most exciting strategy in the world. And it really looked like it wasn't working. Now it looks a little bit more like it could. Heather, what do you think of this reshuffle in terms of what it says about the future, I mean, it is a move to the centre, West Streeting, Yvette Cooper, um, but these are also the kind of people that teleproducers want to have on. They're good communicators and that's pretty helpful, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, they spent a lot of time in the early months of Keir Starmer's leadership, which is a very difficult period anyway, of course, because we're in the pandemic, but they spent a lot of time putting him forward. You know, they felt the public didn't know who he was and he did almost all the comms for quite a while. You know, he was the one big figure that people recognised and, and he appointed people around him who, you know, some people said he, he didn't like tall poppies very much or he didn't want to be challenged too much or whatever, but he had figures who were sort of very well respected and, and clearly very clever, sort of Annalisa Dodds and the, and the Nick Thomas Simmons figures who, who, who you know, were, were beloved of the party, but not terribly well known by the public and weren't really able to establish a, a great, you know, great sort of media profile. Well, he's now, you know, swept all of that away and, and Starmer sees himself as not being a, a sort of particularly factional politician and doesn't really hate the idea of being forced to put himself on a spectrum, I think, or anywhere on a political spectrum, you know, he's not, not, someone who's sort of come to politics as a career late as it were and and so you know it doesn't want to see it to be seen as a sort of factional move to to the left or or the right or the center but you know most people in the parliamentary party did see it as a as a move to the center but also i think in starmer's mind yes it's very much a move towards a, a look look at these guys we could be in government couldn't we there might be a correlation there ultimately you know that if you want people who look like they could be serious in government you probably want people who can take a slightly more pragmatic approach to some of the issues of the day, you know, just be a little bit less 
ideological uh, in a way that might take them away from the base of the party you know that and that's obviously is almost by definition a move to the center now there, there's a perfectly respectable left argument that goes the center's finished and yeah liberals are a busted flush and you should basically be as left radical as you can because that's what history demands of you but it, at the moment certainly the, the centrists seem to be it's working in exactly the way i think heather just described in terms of just coming across as people who say you know what this lot the Tories, they can't govern and we could. I still not necessarily clear on what their message is and what their, you know, picture is of what Britain ought to look like post-pandemic and, you know, what, what would Keir Starmer's Britain look like? I, I still don't really feel like we have an answer to that question. And I'm part of the reason that we're all sort of doing the Kremlinology of looking at the at the reshuffle and, and what does it mean was because it's exactly that for that reason, I think, because we don't really have a clear vision of where this Labour Party is, is going in terms of the kind of country wants to create and so of course you end up looking at all those different characters and their views and their pronouncements and wondering you know what what, what it means you know one of the things that's developed over the course of the last year that's interesting is that west streeting is able to stand there at the dispatch box against sajid javid and say labor will vote with the government on these restrictions because we're a strong united party acting in the national interests i mean you know a united party who would have thought that a few months ago but against the Tory party, that's quite a clever position for Labour to be in now, isn't it? Because there are deep divisions in the Tory party. How do you think, how bad do you think Johnson's situation is with his backbenchers? I think it's extremely bad. And it's bad because you've got to remember the circumstances in which Boris Johnson was chosen as leader of the Conservative Party. You know, they'd lost to the Brexit party. They came sixth, I think, in the European elections for 2019, you know, behind the Brexit party, the Lib Dems, Labour, the Greens. You know, I mean, it was just, it was appalling. And the perception that they had united around you know, Brexit in particular, that that had united the right, I think obscured the fact that there are still, you know, other profound ideological differences, uh, which then are expressed in the fact that you've got this very incoherent coalition of seats that you got by winning a Brexit election. And then on top of that, you have this section of the Conservative Party, the right wing of the Conservative Party, that has always been a little bit kind of Bolshevik in its view, certainly on the Euroscepticism, uh, they're more ideological than pragmatic. And I think the victory over Brexit slightly went to their heads, you know, the sort of old ERG lot, the Steve Bakers, because they won so big on Brexit, they got this new credibility. And I think they have now are, have, are sort of spending that on, you know, in thinking that they are, are more in tune with the country uh, and more in touch with reality than in fact that they are. And they're wielding that power they've got. You know, Johnson is a hostage to that faction, just as Theresa May was, just as actually every Tory leader has been for more or less as long as I've been alive. Uh, and also as long as I've been following politics. And that's a death spiral for Tory leaders becoming hostage to those people. That's the pattern. This disease will now be with us forever. There will be new variants. The vaccine continues to give a high degree of protection against serious illness and death. And in trade, we just do now need to get on with our lives. And obviously the biggest challenge to come is that we're now going into this awful deja vu situation with the Omicron variant, where we don't have that many people around the cabinet table, you know, making the crucial decisions, people like Matt Hancock or Michael Gove, who, who moved departments, you know, who are cautious. It felt like you were watching a, a, a parallel universe between Professor Chris Whitty and Boris Johnson as we're heading into Christmas, where one wants to give these dire warnings and another wants people to go as far as they can. And that's that's really going to come to a head over the coming weeks, isn't it? Especially as people start to mix with loved ones over Christmas. 
Yeah, I, one thing that I would say on that is I generally uh, in for the first stages of the pandemic, which went on quite a long time, I felt we were sort of spared the kind of cultural war dimension to the pandemic that they had in the States. Uh, and that was a big problem because Donald Trump really took a sort of crazy side of it, all the drinking bleach and denying the whole thing and all that sort of stuff. And actually, in fairness to Boris Johnson, he did sort of defer to the science when he didn't have any other options. He didn't go down that route. And you feel now that something more like that with all the cult, with all the fatigue and where a lot of the conservative MPs are, something a bit more ugly like that is coming down the track at us. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I hope that's not the case, but that sort of feels we're going to get more of that than, than we've had so far. Yeah, and we had that extraordinary rebellion, of course, where you had a hundred, extraordinary number, a hundred Conservative MPs voting against what really, you know, fairly modest measures, vaccine passports. So uh, they, they're really willing to assert themselves. And I think Johnson is going to find himself trapped between them and, and you know, his, his scientific advisors. Yeah, just very quick one. Like 38 Tory MPs voted against masks indoors, right? Those are the hardcore. Those people, that's that's getting into onto kind of you know, weird denialism zone and that, you know, just put a mask on people, seriously. And one of the things that a lot of people have observed is that if we do come to a leadership challenge against Johnson, which, you know, doesn't seem outside the realms of possibility, is that whoever wins that challenge will have to cater to that constituency now, right? in the same way that at the last leadership election, the contenders had to cater to that hard Brexit constituency in the Tory party, meaning that, you know, that is the shape of the next leadership race, isn't it? That's an excellent point. Yeah, yeah exactly. You remember how everyone trips over themselves to be even more, you know, no deal would be fine than Boris Johnson. Dominic Raab being a classic example, like outflanking Boris Johnson on hard Brexitism. The equivalent of that contest, yeah, that actually... Um, makes my blood run cold to be quite honest where that could take them who knows right but it's hard, hard to see Sunak and Truss or Truss who look like the most likely candidates being able to hold together the quite complicated electoral coalition that Johnson held together to win in 2019 right he had Brexit on his side sort of holding together very very different kinds of Tory voters he had Jeremy Corbyn people who potentially didn't want to vote Labour or even Lib Dem because they didn't want to let Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street. Well, he won't have either of those factors. And, and you know, you potentially won't have Boris Johnson, who had quite a draw in some of those red wall seats. So you do wonder, I think Labour would feel quite enthused in some ways by the idea of, of, a, of a Truss or a Sunak and whether they would be able to sort of stitch together the different voter groups that Boris Johnson managed to reach. It'll be someone weird we wouldn't have thought of. It'll be like Oliver Dowden or someone like that. It always is. The, it's never the person you think it is, is yeah. it's true. Heather Stewart, Raphael Baer, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. That's all from us this year. We're taking a break next week, but we'll be back on the 5th of January. The producer this week was Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jessica Elgott. I hope you have a lovely time, whatever you end up doing over the holidays. And as we've said throughout the year, please stay safe out there. And thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Hallo, hier ist wieder Clark. Clark? Ist das nicht diese kostenlose App, mit der ich meine Versicherungen ganz einfach manage? Genau. Nach der Anmeldung kannst du deine bestehenden Verträge in die App hochladen und sie mit dem Bedarfscheck bewerten lassen. Wo es Optimierungsmöglichkeiten gibt, macht dir Clark alternative Vorschläge. Übrigens 100% unabhängig von einzelnen Versicherungsanbietern. Und bei Fragen stehen dir die Clark-Versicherungsexperten zur Verfügung. Ganz ohne Wartezeit. 
Wenn du dich jetzt mit dem Gutscheincode PODCAST30 alles großgeschrieben registrierst und deine Versicherungen in Clark hochlädst, erhältst du einen Amazon-Gutschein von bis zu 30 Euro. 